Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it, th it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This is God's word. If God became a man and lived among us and proved his deity by incomparable miracles, the transforming of the most broken lives, of teaching that rang with a divine authority and fulfilled prophecies from 500, 1,000, and 2,000 years before he ever lived. We would expect that he would be welcomed, he'd be celebrated, he'd be revered, and we'd place him on the throne hoping that he would rule our world. But instead, when the Son of God actually did come to earth, he was despised and rejected. He was beaten and brutalized. He was scorned and crucified. Even today, he's rejected and scorned by many, reinvented by others, and his followers are persecuted and martyred in many corners of the world with very few people caring. Why would he endure such abuse? Let's pray. Father, may your spirit today connect us with what Jesus Christ went through so that we would have a greater appreciation for what he's done, what he went through, for the magnitude of his love. And Lord, as we see Jesus, may he draw us to himself as a model for our lives. In Christ we pray, amen. We will never, ever, ever comprehend the magnitude of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke detail the agony of Christ in the garden called Gethsemane. Matthew says of Jesus, well, Jesus says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Mark wrote that Jesus was greatly distressed, deeply troubled. Luke speaks of him being in agony and sweating drops like blood. 
And that what he was going through was so deep, so intense, that an angel had to come to minister to him in that garden. Why? Because it was in the garden when he fully and completely realized all that he would have to go through. In each of these Gospels, his prayer is recorded. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus doesn't record the struggle of Gethsemane in the Gospel of John that we've been studying. But he does capture the struggle of Jesus in these few words. Verse 27 of chapter 12. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come for this hour. What we're going to do this morning is look at what Jesus Christ was agonizing over. We're going to look at his struggle. And then we're going to look at the reason for why he actually endured our brutality. And then we're going to look at the decision we make in light of his. So looking at Jesus' struggle, his decision, and then our decision. As we see in John 12, 27, Jesus Christ struggled to the point where he considered abandoning his mission. He said, would he say, Father, save me from this hour, because the Father could have delivered him. But Jesus wouldn't because his entire mission was to be fulfilled at the cross. Let's take a moment to consider what Jesus was thinking, what he was struggling with in that moment where he said his soul is troubled. He was about to be arrested and he would be beaten. Peter, the one he had placed so much on, would deny him three times. His Disciples would desert him, one of them completely betray him. The soldiers would mock him in every possible way, and the religious leaders would crow victory over him in his agony on the cross. But you know, there are many martyrs who endured some things that were similar, and that it doesn't seem as though they hesitated when they had to face death. Stephen, when he was being stoned, he was at peace, and he said, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit, and then he said, Lord, don't hold this against them. Polycarp, an early church father, when he was being burned at the stake, he said, I bless thee that thou hast granted me this day and this hour that I may share among the number of the martyrs in the cup of Christ. John Huss, as the Flames engulfed him, sang a hymn. And yet Jesus trembles, hesitates. Father, if there's any way, couldn't this cup be removed from me? Why? Because he was about to endure something much, much greater than any martyr ever endured. For they suffered the loss of their physical lives. And the view before them was heaven. Jesus 
would not only lose his physical life, but his spiritual life. And the view before him was actually hell on the cross. Second Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That Jesus not only paid for our sin, but he became sin itself. Fulton Sheen captures this in a little way. He said, once this pure, sinless mind of our Savior had brought all of the iniquity of the past upon his soul as if it were his own, he now reached into the future He saw the betrayals of future Judases, the sins of heresy, the broken marriage vows, lies, slanders, adulteries, murders, apostasies. All these crimes were thrust into his own hands as if he committed them. From the north, south, east, and west, the foul miasma of the world's sins rushed upon him like a flood, and Samson-like, he reached up and pull the whole guilt of the world upon himself as if he were guilty, paying for the debt in our name so that we might once more have access to the Father. That's what Jesus foresaw he would have to endure. It's no wonder, he said, Lord, if it's possible in any way, remove this cup. So why did he say, but Father... Your will be done. Why did he make that decision and say, yes, I will fulfill the mission. I will endure all of this. Hebrews chapter 12 says that Jesus endured the cross and had despised the shame because of the joy set before him. What was that joy? And we see in this passage it was two things. It was the glory of God and the welfare of of humanity because he loved God and he loved you more than he loved his own life. Jesus says in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus' greatest desire always was to glorify the Father. You see, in the Trinity, from eternity past, the Father and Son had an enduring, eternal love relationship where they glorified each other, considered one another more important than themselves, and would live for each other. Cornelius Plantinga captures it succinctly. The persons within God exalt each other. They commune with each other and they defer to each other. Each divine person harbors the others at the very center of his being. Jesus always had God the Father at the center of his being. And so when he looked down, what he would experience, he looked up and saw that God would be glorified. And so he prayed, Father, glorify your name. And the Father says, I have glorified it in the way you've been living. And I will glorify it at the cross. What does it mean to glorify God? Now there's 
a Greek word and there's a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for glorified is kavod. And it means heavy, weighty. If you have a heavy amount of gold, it's very, very valuable. We've used the word heavy back in my young days to mean really important. If you said something and another person said, wow, that is heavy. Wow. <laughs> that meant that is really matters. That's something significant. That's something really important. And that's what the Hebrew word means. That God is the most important thing. And he was in Jesus' life. He lived his entire life on earth pointing to the Father, doing the Father's will, repeating the Father's words, uniting himself with the Father's goals, and certainly here the Father's mission at the cost of his own life. He made God the very the center of his life. The Greek word is doxa. And we get our word doxology from that. And it means praise and honor. And it's what we do when we sing songs and we, we praise God or we begin our prayers with adoration, praising God. Or we might just say, praise God. And the way to praise God, though, is to unveil his character qualities and his attributes. I always liken this term glory of God of what happened at the senior night of my son, one of my sons. And uh, they gave out a various awards and then it came to the most significant award of all, the most well-rounded person. And so they said to you, winner of the Kavanaugh Award, and then they began to recite the attributes. He was all conference and cross country and outdoor track. He is loved by his teachers. They think he is one of the most self unselfish people. He cares so much for others. It was on and on. It says, in essence, he is a gem. That's a way to glorify God. And then they gave him the award. To glorify God, think of that, is we are giving God an award for being as wonderful as he is and have done what he has done. And we glorify him and praise him by unfolding the wonders of his attributes and the beauty of his deeds. That's what we do in worship services. That's what we're doing in songs. Jesus glorified the Father throughout his life because he lived just as the Father would have lived. He showed us the characters, qualities, and attributes of God the Father in daily living. He also glorified God on the cross. Clearly, God the Father was the most important thing in his life, the very center of his life. That's why he went to the cross. And he said, will I deny the mission that God has given me? Of course not, because God is the most important thing in my life. And on that cross, he unveiled the wonders and the depths and levels of the attributes of God. I've said this before, but we really need to grasp this. 
that it is at the cross where God the Father and God the Son are most glorified. We look at creation and we can see God is powerful, he's beautiful, he's wonderful, he's faithful. But can we ever understand grace? The magnitude of grace and mercy without the cross. Can we ever understand the holiness of God until we see how that holiness was so broken by us that God himself had to pay for our sin? Would we ever realize the fullness of God's justice and wrath against what is wrong in sin? Did we not see that wrath poured out on Jesus? We would not see a level of faithfulness to the promises of God if they're all fulfilled at the cross. Father, glorify thy name. And the Father says, you have glorified it and you will glorify it. That was at the heart of Jesus' choice. And also, you and I were at the heart of his choice. He's already said... In the previous verse, that unless a seed dies, it won't bear fruit. And he's pointing to his death, and that fruit is our lives, and he's been saying it throughout the book. He says, I come to give you life. Life is what it was meant to be, and I come to give you eternal life. And that life is given to us because of the cross. So he says, in verses 31 through 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So he's saying is lifted up on the cross. He's going to die. Why? Because the judgment of the world is now. And the judgment of Satan is now. Now, when we hear Jesus say, now is the judgment of the world, if I was there and I believe Jesus, I would look to heaven and see if lightning bolts are going to come down and strike person after person after person. Or if there'd be a tsunami flood that wipes us all away or a fire that burns the earth. Judgment is now, but none of that happened. Even those who crucified, their lives went unruffled. So what does Jesus mean? The judgment of the world has come. The judgment of the world came at the cross as it fell upon Jesus. People didn't see any signs except for three hours of darkness. I remember watching the movie Ben-Hur and seeing that darkness come over during the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And I said, ah, God's very angry. He's showing his anger at all of those who have rejected and crucified Jesus. And I was completely wrong. It's only when I understood at the beginning of those dead darkness was Jesus' words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at the end of the darkness, he says, it is finished. That darkness pictured God's judgment on Jesus. 
it all fell on him. Many people don't understand that today. It's very common for people to think that God is a loving God, therefore God will accept everyone, or at least the, the, the good people and the average people, because God is love. But God is also just. And if he is just, we have to pay the debt. The debt has to be paid for our sin. Do we want God to be just? Our streets have been filled all summer with people crying out for justice. For George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, for others. They've been crying out for social justice. Rightly crying out for justice. I remember when the, the shootings in Newtown, Newtown, Connecticut, and the bombing in Boston, and the president said that he was going to seek justice, and we were all excited that he was going to put the full extent of the law upon the perpetrators of these crimes. We desired that. We would throw out just, unjust judges. They need to be just. We want to elect just politicians. Do we want a just God? Yes, we do. And we're in trouble if he's a just God. We usually want a just God for everyone who's hurt us, but as far as we're going, uh, mercy for us. Just let your love prevail, God, and just forget about what we've done. Don't be just toward us. But God has to be. And so, will he love us and accept us, or will he judge us justly and condemn us? But that's where the cross brings the love of God and the justice together. The payment for our sins is laid on Jesus. That was the biggest nightmare that he faced, but he did it for you and me. The greatest words are now is the judgment of the world. And we waited and saw it fall on Jesus, our judgment. He also says, the ruler of this world will be defeated. And he is referring to Satan. Now, Modern thinking is, well, Satan might be a personification of evil. That's, there's this evil out there. But he can't be a real person. I mean, science, you know, they would say, there's no Satan out there. But see, science can only measure the physical. It can't measure the spiritual dimension. It can't even measure your spirit. You know you have a spirit. That makes you different from me. So we can't measure the spiritual realm. So we can't really say anything about a real Satan. See, we've had all these misconceptions of Satan being some uh, imaginary being running around in red leotards with a pitchfork and horns. That's not the Satan of the scripture. Think more of a CEO of an advertising company. Somebody's going to play with our thoughts and our minds. See, commercials can't control us, but they 
try to plant thoughts into our mind that play on our desires till we say, I need that. I have to do that. I have to have that. And that's the way Satan works. He can't, he doesn't cause us to sin, but he plays on our weaknesses. He plays on the, the lusts of our flesh and the greed that's in our heart or the arrogance in our minds. And he tempts us till we, we fall and cave into those. But Jesus says at the cross, Satan is defeated. Well, why did he even need to be defeated? How is, how is Satan, the god of this world, the ruler of this world? How, how could that be? Well, God gave dominion over the world to Adam. When Adam sinned and fell to Satan's temptation, if you eat of this tree that God says you can't eat of, you'll be like God. And when Adam fell to that, rulership of the world was transferred from Adam to Satan. How do we know that? Look at Jesus, Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Satan takes him up to the high mountain and says, lets him see all the kingdoms of the world and says, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give these to you. You notice Jesus didn't say, huh, are you kidding me? You don't rule these kingdoms. No, instead he said, I will not succumb to that temptation. Because Jesus knew his mission was to regain the world through the cross. And that's what he did. He the second Adam was victorious and overcame where the first Adam had fallen. And so Jesus defeats the ruler of this world, but then we say, but it, it, if we look at the world, it doesn't look very different from what it looked like before. If Satan's ruling now, I mean, if then he's, he's ruling now. So what does it mean that, that Jesus has conquered the, the ruler of this world? Well, one is, it's at the cross he conquers it. But the fulfillment of that is coming later. When you buy something uh, online, you pay for it today, but it's not coming for a couple days or weeks. <laughs> Jesus paid the price and won the victory. And that the fulfillment and totality of that victory will be when he returns and Satan is cast into the lake of fire. But you know, there is a change from before Jesus and after Jesus. And it's the called the church of Jesus Christ that has been a light to the world and has done so much good for our world. See, because believers today do have victory over Satan. They're can experience that today as 1 John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So Christians have been put in that position to be victorious over Satan because of what Jesus Christ did at the cross.
Jesus struggled, but he made a decision and said yes to God's will because his desire to glorify God and his love for us. And as he says that to this crowd, they start to make a decision about Jesus. Verse 34 says, So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And and their argument is, you know, we've studied the Scripture, and the Scripture says Jesus is the conquering, you know, the the Messiah, the Son of Man, is going to be the conquering victor, and you're going to die? No, this doesn't fit our preconceptions. And Travis unpacked that pretty fully last week. You see, the problem was their understanding of Scripture was limited. They didn't understand Psalm 22, which depicts what Jesus is going to go through on the cross. 500 years before a cross was ever even invented. You know, I've read Psalm 22 to... Even unbelievers who know nothing about Scripture, they don't know where this is coming from. And I read this and I say, who is this describing? And they say, it's describing Jesus at the cross. Written a thousand years before Jesus died on the cross. They didn't understand Psalm 22. They didn't understand Isaiah 53 where he would die for our iniquity. They didn't understand that. And because of their partial understanding, they were in darkness about Jesus. And they didn't accept them. You know, today, we live in darkness. The darkness is that we think we know better. We, we think we know. We think we know more than the Bible. And we have misconceptions about who Jesus is. Our expectation is he's going to be uh, a lovable teddy bear who is a good model for us and has some nice teaching and he's going to show us the way to God and Jesus is all of those things. But he is also Savior and Lord. You see, people don't understand the, and value that Jesus is Savior because we don't see the depths of our sin and the grandeur of God's justice. We're afraid to look in the mirror and see All of the sin that's in our lives, our rebellion, our pushing God off the throne of our lives, making ourselves our own gods. We don't realize the horror of that and we are often in denial about it. If we allowed ourselves to look in the mirror, we would see we need a savior and we would value Jesus. And we want to be Lord of our lives. And so we don't look for a Lord. And so when people reinvent Jesus, it's usually leaving out that we need a Savior and he is it. And we leave out that he needs to be Lord of our lives. And so we reject him or reinvent him. When Jesus said to his crowd, he said, verses 35 and 36, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. 
while you have the light, believe in the light, and you'll become sons of light. What he's saying is that, yes, you live in darkness because you don't know the scriptures well. We live in darkness because we think we know better. But Jesus was a light. And he was living among them. And he, they had that opportunity to believe. But when he left, that window was going to close. You know, I've had many people say to me, I would believe in God if I could see him. Wouldn't, yeah. Wouldn't we all believe in God if we could see him? You know, Philip said that to Jesus. He said, Jesus, show us the Father and then we can believe. And you know what Jesus said? Oh, Philip, have I been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, they had something we don't have. God was living in front of them. They saw God with their own eyes in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about. You have this light and you're going to lose that light and it's, you're going to have a much more difficult time believing without that light. Well, how about for, for us? We, we don't have that light. But God sends the Holy Spirit to make Jesus real to us. That's his main job, to make Jesus real to us. And so that's why Jesus, when he predicted the coming of the Spirit, says he's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to teach you about me. He's going to glorify me. Jesus doesn't leave us alone. He's given us the Spirit who uses the Word of God to bring home the truth of that Word including the picture of Jesus in the gospel and the picture of Jesus throughout all of Scripture because all of Scripture in one way or another points to and speaks of Jesus. So we have him in the Word. We have him in the Spirit. So this morning, we've looked at Jesus' struggles and I hope we've come to appreciate the price he was willing to pay. We've looked at the decision he made. His love for God, desire to glorify him, his love for us, looking out, providing for our welfare. And then we looked at a decision that the crowd failed to make about Jesus. And it leaves us this morning with the decision we have to make about Jesus Christ. If you are not a believer, let the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God is speaking to you right now and is saying, yes, I know there's, I, I'm broken. There's tremendous sin in my life. This is incredible news that there was a Savior who paid for that sin. Receive Christ as that Savior. Say to him, Lord, I have been a sinner and now I realize Jesus Christ took all of my sin, paid for every single sin. I embrace him for what he's done for me. And Lord, when you redo that, then you will want to follow him. Believers, 
let the truths we spoke about, the struggle of Christ this morning, what he did in paying for us, the judgment he has paid for us, the victory he is giving us over Satan, let that not just be something we think about this morning. May it be something we think about every day, begin every day with. Live out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then as you look at him, look at him too as a model for us that we would desire God's glory more than our own lives. That we would love others more than we love our own lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is so wonderful. It is so powerful. May your spirit drive it home to where each one of us is living. Whether we're considering Christ for the first time or the 51st time, speak to us. If we've been a believer for one day or a lifetime, keep us centered in the gospel truths that we've heard this morning, that we see over and over again in Scripture. May it never become old to us. And may it inspire us to be like Christ. Amen.